Well, this will come as no surprise to you, but we live in a very fallen world. And that fact is not new to our day. In fact, the world has been very fallen and very wicked ever since the Garden of Eden, when mankind chose to rebel against God. And I don't know how that affects you completely. I know how it affects me somewhat. So much of what this world has to offer is so repulsive. And it's so uh, despicable that, that it's not even appealing. Especially the, the older I get and the, the more I, I grow in my walk with Christ, the more the things of this world become less and less appealing. And yet, if I'm completely honest with you, I have to acknowledge that there are aspects of what the world has to offer that is appealing. It does hold a bit of, of pull in my life. And, and I'm guessing if you were honest, you would agree with that statement. And so Jesus prayed in John 17. He prayed this concerning the, the men who had followed him for the three years that he was ministering here on this earth. He prayed this. He said, I have given them thy word, and the world hath hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, which would have been the, maybe the easy thing for God to do, but rather Jesus prayed that thou shouldest keep them from the evil. They are not of the world, Jesus said, even as I am not of the world. I've entitled the message this morning, How in the World Will I Forsake the World? You can turn with me in your Bibles to Titus chapter 2. Some time ago, because of an assignment that I was given, I spent quite a bit of time studying in the book of Titus. And this morning we're going to be looking at Titus 2 verses 11 through 15. And it was these verses that... As I studied in this book, these verses, I would say, impacted me and spoke to me probably more than any of the other verses in this book. And so I want to read these this morning. I want to focus on these for the message. And the purpose of the message is to help us understand what it takes to truly renounce the world and follow Christ. Titus 2, starting with verse 11. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that, denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. These things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no man despise thee. I want to begin by looking at verse 12. In verse 12, we have quite a few words mentioned and you could take all of these words and you could put them in one of two lists. And, and you can do this if you want this morning. If you have a paper and pen, you can make these two lists. 
Um, if you don't want to do that, just try to visualize these two lists in your minds. And so if you have two lists, at the top of one list, you would have the things that Paul said to deny. And he says, deny ungodliness and deny worldly lust. So that's the one column. And then on your other list is the things that Paul says, this is how we are to live. And so he says, live soberly, righteously, and godly. So deny ungodliness and worldly lust and live soberly, righteously, and godly. So just picture these two lists this morning as we go through this message. Because I'm going to be referencing them some as we go. But I want to begin, and maybe this will seem a little too academical or whatever, but I want to just take a little time and define these words that Paul uses and just try to stay with me and, and, and I want you to understand a little bit what Paul is getting at when he says to deny ungodliness and worldly lust and live soberly, righteously, and godly. So the word ungodliness is without reverence for God, not merely irreligious. So it's not just somebody that says, well, I'm not a religious person. That is, in a sense, ungodly, but it's, it's more than that. It's acting in contravention of God's demands. So God has a standard. God has things that he wants for his people. And when we understand what that is, but we, do, we go our way. We don't do what God has asked. We do what we want. That is ungodliness. All right, worldly lust. A strong desire for the things that pertain to this world. I talked about that just a little bit right at the beginning. A strong desire for the things that pertain to this world, or another definition, devoted to the world and its pursuits rather than to the things of God. That's worldly lust. And that's the things that Paul says we are to deny. And then he says, live soberly. Soberly is probably a word that when, when it comes to our mind, we, we probably have the wrong impression. It's not stoic. It's not just, you know, ho-hum, never have a smile on your face, never tell a joke. It's, it's, it's not so much of that, although it could include maybe a little more of that than we do sometimes. But it means this, having a very serious attitude, thoughtful. The definition that Vines gives, and I really like this, is the exercise of that self-restraint that governs all passions and desires, enabling us to be conformed to the mind of Christ. So we all have passions, we all have desires, but it's that self-restraint that governs these passions, that governs these desire, desires, and enables us to be conformed to the mind of Christ. So that's soberly. Righteously, is a state of being right. Now, the world we live in has redefined what it means to be right. Being right in our world is whatever feels good to you. If you think it's right, if it's right for you, then it's right, and that's okay. But that's not righteousness. Righteousness, well, let me just read the rest of that definition. A state of being right, judged by the divine standard of what is right. And so God has a standard. This is right. And when we follow God's standard, we look to his standard, and we live that way, then we are righteous because we are following God's standard. It's not the world's standard. It's not our standard, but it's God's standard. 
another definition, the perfect agreement between God's nature and his acts, in which he is the standard for all men. So in a sense, it's being like God, living in a way that, that is conformable with God's standard. That's righteous. And then godly, obviously, would be the, the opposite of ungodly. But it's believing in God and in the importance of living a moral life. It denotes that piety which, characterized by a Godward attitude, does that which is well-pleasing to him. So that's being godly. Now, that's the two lists we have. If I were to ask you to place your life under one of these lists, which of these lists defines your life the best? Which list could you put your name under? The list that Paul says to deny? Ungodliness and worldly lust? Or, or would, does your life demonstrate a sober, righteous, godly life? Which best describes your life? And I know that all of us, I think if we were honest, would acknowledge that we want to be the way God wants us to be, but we do still have that struggle. We're still growing, and I understand that. And I'm not saying that all our life needs to fall completely under this one list uh, without exception, even though that does need to be what we are striving for. But I think most of us here would say that that is what we are striving to attain. We want to live a godly, righteous life. But now a few more things to consider when we think about these lists. If it was up to us, if we could just live however we wanted to live, do whatever we wanted to do, do whatever felt good to us, we would automatically, all of us, would end up under the list of things that Paul says to deny. Because we are fallen. We are fallen humans, and we have a sin nature. And so all of us, if left up to ourselves, we would live in a way that Paul says not to. The deny list is what comes natural to us. The live list will not happen automatically. Both of these words, both deny and live, imply a choice that we are going to make. We are going to choose to deny the things of this world, deny ungodliness, deny worldly lust, and we are going to choose to live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. And so the question for us this morning then, after we look at all of that, the question for us is, how do we go against what our flesh craves? How do we go against what our society accepts, against what brings us the most pleasure, and rather live in a way that is contrary to the world and live lives that bring honor and glory to God? How do we do that? How do we go from this list to this one? What does it take? Now, Paul tells us the answer to that in these verses, but before I look at that, I want to put these verses that we're looking at in the context of the rest of the book. <clears throat> if you study Titus and where he was and what he was to do, he was stationed on an island called Crete. And Paul had left Titus on this island for some specific purposes. And we're told what those purposes are in chapter 1, verse 5. Paul says this, he says, For this cause left I thee in Crete, that thou shouldest set in order the things that are wanting, and ordain elders in every city as I had appointed thee. So, so Titus was there with the purpose of getting things in order. 
getting things the way God wanted them to be, and then planting churches and ordaining leaders of these churches so that the kingdom of God could expand. That's why he was there. And if you read on through this letter, especially chapter 1, you will see that there was definitely things out of order in Crete. Many things out of order. Verse 9 speaks of gainsayers. Verse 10 speaks of unruly, vain talkers and deceivers. Verse 11 speaks of people that says they ruin whole households by teaching things that they ought not, and they do it for filthy lucre's sake or for dishonest gain. They're, they're teaching the things that are contrary to God's word so that they can be lifted up. They can have position or, or, or wealth or whatever it is they were gaining from this. That's what they were doing. Uh, verse 12 calls these Cretes liars, evil beasts, and slow bellies. Now, that's pretty harsh language, but that's what... Um, actually, verse 12 says that one of themselves actually said this of them. It says, one of themselves, even a prophet of their own said, the Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and slow bellies. That wasn't Paul or Titus talking. It was the Cretes themselves saying, this is who these people are. So it's very clear which list these people would have fallen under. These people were living in an ungodly way. And yet, to some extent, and I don't know exactly how this was in this day, but it, it seems like these people were people that we would have called professing Christians. Because in verse 16 of chapter 1, it says this, they profess that they know God, but in works, they deny him. So in, in some sense, these people would have said, yes, I believe in God. I'm living like God wants me to live. And yet you looked at, at their works. You looked at the way they lived their life, and it was very clear that they weren't followers of Christ. So how is Titus supposed to set things in order? How is he supposed to go about transforming these people, moving them from this list over to this list, teaching them to deny these things that our flesh craves and live in a way that is pleasing to to God. I want to go back to chapter 2 now. And I want to look at verses 1 through 10, the verses before our text. And in these verses, Paul gives us, or gives Titus, a picture, a beautiful picture, really, of people that move from one side to the other. And he's saying, if, if you preach sound doctrine, if you teach things, if you teach God's word, this is what's going to happen. This is how people are going to live. And you see the change that took place. Chapter 2, verse 1. But speak thou the things which become sound doctrine, that the aged men, these old men that lived contrary to God, that they be sober, grave, temperate, sound in faith, in charity, in patience. The aged women, likewise, that they be in behavior, as becometh holiness, not false accusers, not given to much wine, but teachers of good things, that they teach the younger women to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. Young men likewise, 
This is speaking to everyone here. Young men likewise, exhort to be sober-minded in all things, showing thyself, Titus, a pattern of good works, in doctrine, showing uncorruptness, gravity, sincerity, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that he that is of the contrary part may be ashamed, having no evil things to say of you. Exhort servants, and this just goes right along with our lesson this morning, husbands, wives, children, servants, Exhort servants to be obedient unto their own masters and to please them well in all things, not answering again, not purloining, but showing all good fidelity that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. And so that's this picture of people that have changed. They used to live like the world. They used to follow the, the desires of their flesh, but they have changed. They are now living in a way that is pleasing to God. They are living godly, sober, righteous lives that God is pleased with. But again, how do we accomplish that? That is where we get to verse 11. And I want you to look at verse 11. We read it once. But I want you to look at that again. And tell me what it is that truly changes a person. What is it that moves one person from one side to the other. Someone tell me. No. Chapter 2, verse 11. Okay, now expound on that a little bit. Okay, I'll read it. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. And what does it do? It teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly lust and live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. And that struck me. It's the grace of God that brought us salvation that teaches us to do this. It enables us to do this. The grace of God that brings salvation. And so if you made this list on this little arrow between the two, maybe you should just write the grace of God. Because it's the grace of God that moves us from one list to the other. And I wish that somehow I could, well, first of all, that I could grasp that. And I could totally understand that in a way that I could present it to you and you would completely understand it. And it would get a hold of you this morning. And I feel like that... In my humanity, I can't do that. But that's what it is. That's what Paul said it takes to move from one side to the other. It's not a fear of hell that's going to make you live a holy life. It's not a list of rules that's going to make you live a holy life. It's not the right accountability program. It's not your own willpower. It's not the right discipleship program, even even though all those things are good and they have their place. But that's not what it takes to help you live a holy life. That's not what it takes to give you what you need to move from one side of the list to to the other. But rather, it's the grace of God that has brought us salvation. And when that reality grasps us, it's that that enables us to live in a way that God calls us to live. Now, I want to just talk a little bit about the grace of God. That, that's a big subject. It's a little word that holds a lot of meaning. And, and um, 
Probably if I was to ask all of you to give your definition of grace, we would probably have multiple definitions. But in a nutshell, the grace of God is simply God's favor to mankind. And we could go through scripture and look at examples. My understanding is, in the Old Testament times, grace was not a spiritual word. It was not a word that was used just in church. If you were out in, in the workplace, you may hear it at the, at the parts store, where, wherever you were at. Uh, it just meant favor. Normally, we don't, normally today, we just use it in a spiritual sense. But just this past week, we have a dog that is causing me some trouble. He continues to go over to my neighbor's house. And... He did it again a couple times this past week, and I, I felt so bad about it. And finally, I texted my neighbor, and I said, you know, I'm sorry. I'm embarrassed. Uh, you know, I, I'm going to try to keep this dog home. And he responded to me. He said, grace and peace to you. It's going to be okay. <laughs> okay? So that wasn't necessarily in a spiritual sense. But just meant, you know, we're still on good terms with each other. I still like you. Okay? Just... Be at peace. It's going to be okay. Most times in the Bible, sometimes we talk about grace and we say that it's, God, it's God's unmerited favor to us. And at times it is. Most times in the Bible, it's not. Most times in the Bible, the person receiving grace made a decision and God rewarded him with the grace of God. But sometimes it's unmerited. I would say almost every time what the person did to receive the grace of God was not worthy of the grace of God. And so it's an unmerited in that sense. And yet they did make a decision to make Jesus the Lord of their life. And because of that, God poured out his grace on them. But it's this grace, it's God's favor toward us that brought us salvation, that, that gave us a plan of salvation. It's it's the grace and the love of God that sent His Son so that we could be saved. And that favor of God also gives us power. And so sometimes when we think about grace, we think about the power of God to live above sin or to do what God wants us to do. And it is that, but it flows out of the favor of God. God looking at us with favor and giving us what we need to do what we need to do. So there was a very common misconception of what grace was in Paul's day. Some thought that grace was a license to sin. And Paul said, God forbid. God's grace teaches us to rise above sin. It gives us the power to deny sin and live upright and holy lives. And the more we understand this, the more this gets a hold of us, the more this settles into our heart, that it's the grace of God that sent His Son, that made a way that we could be redeemed, the more we will make choices to deny our flesh and follow the Spirit of God. The end of verse 12 then, Paul says that the grace of God that brought us salvation teaches us how to live. But then he says this, he says, in this present world now I gave you a little picture of what the present world in Paul's day looked like there at Crete 
these unruly, vain talkers, these evil beasts, the slow bellies. If you were to compare Paul's world or the world that Titus was living in to our world, it would be very different. The challenges that we face are different from the challenges that Titus faced. He didn't have the internet. He didn't have cars. He didn't have uh, probably the affluence that we have today. Um, all that other, the other things that create challenges for us today. He didn't have that, those things. And yet, the root of the problem was the same, whether it was their world or our world. The adversary was still the same. And if you look at the very root of the problems that afflicted this church, largely it was the same thing that we, we deal with. His antics were the same that we face today. The people that were deceiving, the people that were teaching things they shouldn't teach, misaligning the word of God, fulfilling the desires of their flesh, claiming to know God and yet living ungodly lives. But yet Paul says, this is how we are to live in this present world. And I think if Paul was standing up here today, he would tell us the same thing, that this is how we are to live in our present world. But the challenges we face, God still expects the same thing out of us as he did out of the Cretans. Now to make this practical for us this morning, I want to share two experiences that I had some time ago, I think it was this past fall, right over the time that I was studying the book of Titus. I had these two experiences that I felt related very well to this subject of the grace of God teaching us how to live our lives. The first one was a young man that I relate with some. And this man has a relationship with an older brother that has not always been easy. The way this, this, these, these, these brothers have related to each other, there have been things on both sides that, that have caused some tension. And yet, as I look at this young man relating to this brother, I'm so blessed at the way he, he loves him. And he, he looks up to him, and he goes to him for advice, and he, he respects him in spite of some of the hurt that he has received from this brother. And so one time I was talking to this brother, and he was sharing some things, some things that maybe had happened in the past. I forget exactly how the conversation went. And I just told him, I said, I'm really blessed with how you can relate in such a loving and respectful way in spite of some of the things that have been said about you, some of the things that have been done to you in the past, that you can still respect him the way you do. And here was his response to me. He simply said this. Well, he said, it's the work of the gospel in my life. He said, at one time, I couldn't have done that. But it's the work of the gospel in my life. And I pondered that comment. And I had to think of all the people who claim to know Christ. People, sometimes in our own church pews, who say they believe, who say they're following Christ, and yet there's bitterness and there's unforgiveness in their life that they can't let go of. There's moral failures that continue to happen over and over 
again. They continue to fulfill the lust of their flesh. They continue to pattern their life after the world. And I had to wonder, why isn't the gospel working in their life? Where is the gospel in their life? Where is the power of God? Where is the grace of God in that person's life? Why can't he rise above his sin? Why can't he forgive the man that, that did him wrong? Why can't he love his wife in spite of what she's done or hasn't done? Where's the grace of God in their life? They profess to know God, and yet in works, they deny him. But I would suggest to you this morning that if that describes you, that the problem is not the grace of God. The problem is not the work of the gospel in your life. The problem is your life. Paul said that the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. It's available to all of us. There's not a one of us in this room that cannot claim the grace, the favor, the power of God in your life to rise above your past, to rise above the things that are plaguing you. It's available to all. It's power to all. And yet, it isn't a magic pill that automatically causes us to live in victory. The grace of God teaches us to rise above the things of this world. It's not automatic. Which leads me to the next story. Around this same time, I have a neighbor, actually the same neighbor that my dog visits. He had invited me. He's a pastor at a local community church there in Weir's Cave. And he had invited me to come attend a meeting that their church was having a man was going to be coming in and speaking on technology. And he invited me to come listen. This man has done a lot of research on the brain and, and how addictions affect your brain. And, and he's, he's concluded that uh, things like screen time, technology, the way we use technology, has the same impact on our brain as does heroin or cocaine or some of the hardcore drugs that, that people take. And so he was sharing his, his research with, with his church. And so I went. And I sat there in that room, utterly amazed. I was sitting there in a group of people that oftentimes we would call community folks. Okay, They weren't like us. Now, these were church-going people, and I'm not judging where they were, but these were just community folks. This man was standing up in front of them in a tight muscle shirt. His wife was in the back. Her hair was probably about this long, okay? And yet he was saying things that just amazed me. Things like, if you can't get a hold of, get control of your smartphone, you need to get rid of it. Uh, he was saying, never put an infant in front of a screen and be very cautious about putting a toddler in front of a screen. He was saying that you should never use Snapchat, TikTok, and, and parts of Facebook. He was saying you should have nothing to do with them. Uh, the, 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 the audience then was asking him questions and, and, say, and saying, well, what about this? You know, I, I, li I watch sermons on YouTube, and sometimes ad pops up, an ad pops up, and it, it, it takes me places I shouldn't go. What should I do? And he was saying, don't watch the sermons. Okay? And it, I was just amazed to hear this man saying this. And it was right over the time that I was studying this passage 
But it's the grace of God that teaches us to deny these things. And this was a man, I didn't know much about him, but I knew enough about him to know that he knew who we were. He knew who the Mennonites were. And he probably didn't have a whole lot of respect for us. He would have called us things like uh, legalist. He would have said that we have a work salvation and, and that we're trying to obtain favor with God through our, through our works and, and obtain righteousness through rules and stuff like that. And so I decided that I was going to go talk to him. And I was going to kind of turn the tables on him. And so I, I went up to him and I, I expressed my appreciation for what he was saying. But then I asked him, I said, basically asked him the question that he would normally ask me. I said, what about the grace of God that teaches us to deny these things? Why do we need all these guidelines, all these boundaries, all these restrictions? What about the grace of God that teaches us to live this way? And basically his answer to me was, I've already said it, but basically he said that the grace of God is God's favor. I think he said God's unmerited favor to to us. But he said it's more than that. The grace of God is God's enabling power in our life to do what we need to do in order to be who we need to be. God gives us the power by his grace to make the decisions that we need to make in order to live like we need to live. Which is what Paul says. The grace of God teaches us. It enables us. It empowers us. It gives us a desire to live like God wants us to live. Now I tell, all, I tell you all that for this purpose. The grace of God teaches us to live a holy life. And yet the grace of God is not a magic pill that simply enables us to walk hand in hand with the world and yet live in victory. It's not a magic pill that allows us to flirt with sensuality and perversion and yet live a life that God is pleased with. The grace of God teaches us to rise above sin, to flee from sin, to renounce the things of this world, to say no to our fleshly desires and live righteous, godly, and holy lives in this world. So again, I ask you, is the grace of God and the work of the gospel doing a true, genuine work in your life? Is it teaching you? Is it enabling you, empowering you, giving you a desire to renounce the things of this world? And if it's not, I challenge you to look at your life because the work of the gospel is available to all men. Paul wanted true Christianity. And he told Titus what to do in order to obtain this. He said it's the grace of God that brings us salvation. And so I want to close this message simply by going a little further in Titus where Paul just takes some time to exalt the grace of God that brought us salvation and just elaborate on that a little bit. And I want to close the message by doing that same thing. Titus 2 We started with verse 11. I want to go, I want to start with verse 13. We already read this once. We're going to read it again. Looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. The grace of God that brought us salvation brings us hope. And it is hope beyond today. Hope beyond our current trials. Hope beyond our current disappointments. Hope that is eternal because of Jesus Christ. 
Verse 14, God, I'm sorry, who gave himself, Jesus, gave himself. He gave himself. Allow that to sink in. His life wasn't taken from us. He gave it. It wasn't taken from him. He gave it for us. He gave himself that he might redeem us. Fallen humanity. He might redeem us. Why did he do that? So we could go to heaven, right? Well, that's part of it. That's the reward. But that's not what this verse says. This verse says that he redeemed us from all iniquity to purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. God wanted a people. And that's why he sent his son. And yes, the ultimate reward is glory. That hope of eternal life. And yet eternal life begins today. In our hearts today. We are a people set apart for the work of God. We are a people that God wants to glorify Him. He wants us to live in a way that brings glory to Him. He wants us to live in a way that we can show the world what the whole world could look like if we all followed the King. Then we go to chapter 3, verse 3. For we ourselves also, and I think all of us, if you pay attention to what this verse says, you could put yourself in this verse. We ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving diverse lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. Okay? All of us were there. And you notice this list that I just read. Some of the lists Paul gives are vile, gross, what we would call gross sins. That's not what this list is. It's things that we can relate with, even if we grew up in a fairly godly setting. Foolish, disobedient, deceived, living like we wanted to live, following our carnal desires, malice and envy, hating one another. That's where we were. But even in that state, God loved us. Verse 4. But after that, The kindness and love of God, our Savior, toward man appeared. Because we were righteous? No. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost which He shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. That being justified by His grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Praise God. That's the salvation that God has offered to each one of us. He has made made it available to each one of us today. And Paul says, these things I will that thou affirm constantly. This is something that you can't talk about too much. Because this is the thing that's going to allow you to live in a way that that is pleasing to God. To live like God wants you to live. And so once again, it's the grace of God that teaches us to live like God wants us to live. To move from one side of the list to the other. It's his power. It's the work of the gospel in our life. So may God help us to that end. Shall we have a song?